Hello, and welcome to the Health and Happiness Podcast, premier version, a podcast that basically will examine cutting-edge current concepts in lifestyle and preventive medicine with a, a heavy dose of uh, nature cure and uh, home uh, home effective therapies, that things you can do for yourself to make a difference in your life and the lives of your family and loved ones. I am uh, Peter Diadamo, and I am ably assisted on this podcast by Dr. Tara Nyack. Hi. Uh, the uh, beginnings of a podcast are always perhaps the most uncomfortable because we haven't really developed a format yet, but I think the important part here is to start out with uh, perhaps maybe a, a, a mission statement. Uh, like, what are we trying to do here? Uh, I think the most important thing about what I would like to accomplish is to um, make the complex simple for people. Uh, take con uh, concepts that are, are critical, uh, cutting edge in, in terms of uh, uh, research and, and healthcare, but to put them into the day-to-day -day language, things that people can understand and uh, grasp. And sometimes that's just essentially distilling it down to common sense in many instances. And we're both naturopathic doctors, so I think people, the people that listen to this podcast are people that are getting primed for naturopathic medicine. So these are all things that you can start working on, start identifying in your own health before you come to us for the complex problem solving. And for people who don't know what a naturopathic doctor is, I like to tell my patients that I have the same license type privileges as any other conventional primary care physician, be they a conventional medical doctor, allopath, or a doctor of osteopathy. In other words, as a naturopath, you go through conventional medical training with maybe an extra emphasis on lifestyle, nutrition. Uh, but it's not necessarily what you use that distinguishes a naturopath. It's, it's how you interpret the situation and what you bring to it as a solution that really characterizes naturopathy. So we're really hung up on assisting the recuperative powers uh, rather than just essentially running towards something that's going to essentially dictate to the situation, be it a drug or pharmaceutical. Although, as primary care physicians, in most places we can prescribe pharmaceuticals as well. But we consider those a short-term solution, and many times the problem can be uh, addressed by issues deeper that might be uh, involved, a uh, more personalized type of approach or uh, more of a lifestyle type of thing. So naturopaths tend, typically tend to spend more time with the patient, they tend to communicate longer with the patient, they tend to have more interest in the patient's I issues, lifestyle issues, diet, exercise, stress reduction, sleep quality. Uh, all the things that make a great physician, I think, can also go a long way to make a great naturopathic physician. Sure. And you didn't mention herbs or botanical medicine, which is a huge part of what we both do. And just sort of utilizing everything that we can to make the body work better to do its own job because we understand the body's capacity to heal itself. Tara, I'm going to put you on the spot. Why don't you give us a little bit of a short bio about who you are and where you come from and why you're here? Sure. Um, well, I'm a Temple University undergraduate that chose to go to uh, University of Bridgeport in Connecticut, mainly because it was the only East Coast naturopathic college. And I just happened to land there with you. Um, so, I have no idea that you were a genetics um, major? Yeah, so I, well, I wasn't a genetics major, but um, back 
when I was at Temple University, some of the first courses ever offered in epigenetics and proteomics were there. So I chose all of my electives, over 20 credits in in behavioral genetics, population genetics, and epigenetics, um, when this was really a new science and loved it. So I really wanted to get into cellular research. I, I really wanted to do stem cell because that was really hot back in you know 2009 when I graduated. Um, but I, I, I couldn't handle the killing of little zebrafish or, or bleeding of rabbits that all goes into lab work. And I wanted more interaction. So I landed a job as a high school science teacher just to kind of stopgap myself and eventually got brave enough to come out to naturopathic medical school, um, which normally naturopathic medical school, the first two years are very clinical. You're sitting in a classroom. Uh, but then I met you, and I had your course in biochemical individuality and kind of had my world rocked and was made really uncomfortable by realizing how much I don't know and just kept you know, being super thirsty for knowledge ever since. So my favorite story about learning from you is um, one day I came into your office and said, like, I need to know how you know all of this, not just what you know, but like, how did you even come to this? And I kind of saw you light up and you started plucking books from a shelf. And I went home with a box of like 15, 16 books on everything from fractals to computational cybernetics and all of the the books that you read and put together sort of in a really renaissance kind of way, looking at philosophy and joining it with all of the sciences from physics to biology and, and sort of developing your theories. And Tara actually is a, a, a protege who um, has gone on to develop a very thriving private practice in the Philadelphia area, which we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Uh, and we're really, really proud and happy to have you on here. It's sort of a generational completion for the two of us to be working together because the, um, the differences between us um, through the years is uh, nothing in compared to the tremendous amount of symmetry that we have both in terms of how we think about problems and how we go about solving them. So it's, it's really lovely to have you with this um, podcast, and, and I look forward to our uh, vigorous discussions on future topics. I am a guy who most people know because I wrote a book called Eat Right for Your Type uh, back in the mid-1990s, which uh, looked at how your blood type could influence things like your diet and how you might be able to use that information to perhaps structure some preventive type approaches, things maybe about eating a certain way or exercising a certain way or being alert for certain type of illnesses that might be more commonly or more more, more prone to. You're that fad diet guy, that I'm blood guy type guy. I'm the guy who wrote the blood type diet fad diet book, yes. <laughs> a fad diet book still in hardcover with a new version that came out last year. And we'll do a subsequent podcast on on that, and, and that will be part of the first uh, series of podcasts we'll be doing. Um, I then basically, well, I was in private practice for the better part of three decades and then joined with the uh, University of Bridgeport to develop a center of excellence in what's known as generative medicine, which is a um, uh, very uh, bioinformatically, bioinformatic type uh, medicine that uses a lot of computer analysis of genetic data and things like that. Because they're kind of a, a love of mine. I, I love data. I love, I love uh, computer coding and stuff. So, And that's, of course, where Tara and I basically connected. And our goal was to kind of put together something where we could just talk, uh, just as if we normally talk uh, around a, a table or a desk or a conference room, 
but in ways that basically have opportunities for other people to, to benefit by our, our quest for, for simplicity. Um, so on to today's podcast, which uh, is on the topic of lectins. And it's odd to start with maybe as advanced a topic as this, but it has really shown up somewhat in the new mass market diet literature through a couple of books that have come out. And the um, feedback that I received as those books became more and more popular were, uh, quote, didn't you do this like 25 years ago? And the reality was that, yes, the first book that I wrote called Eat Right for Your Type had extensive chapters on the effect of these uh, lectins. And so that's the word for today is, is lectin. Uh, and the, what, good news about, uh, the good news about this podcast, I think, is some of the new literature, some of the new um, trends in lectins are lectin avoidance completely. And so many plants have so many lectins that by listening to this podcast, you can get lectin specific instead of throwing out half of the foods that you're already eating, you can really hone in on which of those are beneficial and which are harmful. Right. And many of these new mass market books on lectins don't address the major 800-pound gorilla in the room, which is that probably 40 to 50% of all lectins show some degree of specificity for one blood type or another. And so if you just put out a book that says lectins are bad, don't eat them, well, that's just like saying, hey, please deliver this letter to my friend in Seattle, Washington, but not having a specific street address or a zip code. I mean, it's very unlikely to get there. It's too general a piece of advice to be very useful. And it's very restrictive dietarily. I mean, right. if you cut out everything with lectins, you're looking at a whole bunch of plants that are off the table. And also, and of course, we're having a discussion about lectins, and we haven't even bothered to explain to the audience what they are, but we'll do that in a second. It turns out that many of these books tend to vilify lectins and make them bad, when in many respects, although sometimes they could be problematic in a person, as we'll discuss, let's say, what it digestive problem or something like that, they can also be turned around and used as molecular tools. I mean, they, they're actually little molecules that can give us benefit in certain instances. And surprisingly, um, many foods that have therapeutic qualities and many herbs that have therapeutic qualities have those therapeutic qualities because of a lectin that they contain. Uh, and so, well, before we go any further in confusing the audience, let's go and talk about what a lectin is. So a lectin is a highly specific protein, and when we're talking about any type of molecular biology, we're, we're thinking about the specific binding sites that proteins will link to. And so a lectin has very specific binding site that it will link to. They really like sugars. And as we know, our blood type antigens are technically just a sugar that's attached to our red blood cells. And lectins themselves are commonly found in lots of foods, and typically most commonly found in foods like seeds and grains and legumes uh, because a lectin has this amazing property that it can cause uh, critters, organisms, and cells to glom together in a process called agglutination. So in many respects, lectins behave much like our body's own antibodies. Our, our antibodies actually often respond to invaders by causing them to get stuck together. Uh, process, like we say, called agglutination. And lectins actually have that same propensity. They have that same ability, although they're, they're often made by uh, or organisms or cells or, or, or food sources that would never be able to possess an immune system. So they, they can't really make their own antibodies. So what they do is they make a little molecule 
that acts like an antibody, and they put it in these seeds and, and grains and legumes because what, what, what happens to these things before they can sprout and germinate is they're very liable to becoming attacked by fungus. And so this little lectin that's embedded in the seed acts like a primitive antibody to stop these particular fungus and other things from infecting the seed until it can germinate. So a lot of lectins basically are there for protective things on germ. And, and the thing always worth thinking about is how much of our diet is composed of embryos when you think about it, just things that are growing uh, or in embryonic form. Most of the seeds and grains and things are embryos for plants. So, so what you're saying is, from a paper that I love, talking about um, lectins as a plant defense system. So really it's it's a way for plants to avoid other animals ingesting them, but also other organisms like fungus growing on them so that they can reproduce, which is, I guess, usually biology's main goal, reproduction, reproduction. survival. And it turns out that lectins are actually sometimes made inside our own bodies. There are what are called serum lectins that are uh, in our bloodstream to help us pr- to protect ourselves from certain types of bacteria. For instance, there's one called mannose-binding lectin, which actually has been shown to have a protective effect in terms of preventing kids from getting multiple ear infections. There's a very well-known molecule called C-reactive protein that's a a marker for inflammation that actually is a serum lectin. There's lectins in your liver that actually have the ability to attach to things and get those things trapped so that they can be kind of processed by the liver. So it's almost like they're like tether hooks. So as all those bad boys are filtering through your liver, these tether hooks can kind of pull them out so that they can be detoxified and processed out of the body before they get into the bloodstream. So these lectins are found all over the place. And the interesting thing is the origin of the word, which is one of the rare words in in medicine that's actually Latin. Most words in medicine are Greek, uh, but Latin... uh, is uh, the use of lectins because it's derived from the Latin word leger, which is um, a, a key lock type of symbolism. Lectins are extraordinarily specific. So that, to go back to what you were saying about sugars, there's all these thousands of different sugars that are made by the body. And, and when we think of sugars, we think of, you know, a jelly donut or, uh, you know, the icing on a birthday cake. But in, in, in our living systems, there's hundreds of different sugars that are known as glycans. And they could be simple sugars like fucose or galactose or glucose. Or they can be very branching structures that can have hundreds of these sugars linked together to make these feathery-like things. And these sugars are on the outside of the cell where they act as sort of a, almost like a signaling device for the cell. So if we were to look at, for instance, how the cell processes information, a lot of times it's the sugar library on the outside of the cell that, for instance, might tell a cell, you need to leave the liver and go to the thymus. And if we change that sugar thing around, the cell doesn't go to the thymus, it goes instead to maybe the spleen. So a lot of the signaling that occurs is, is used with sugars, and a lot of the ways that these sugars are actually bound to each other are with these proteins that like to glom onto them. Sure, and it's the glycocalyx, my, one of my favorite words. Um, but Gly- Well, wait a minute. Now, you can't just let them hang on with glycocalyx. It's just all of the sugar surrounding the cell in this kind of an envelope around the cell. Uh, so when we think about a, a red blood cell, we think about this cartoon image that we have um, 
in our biology textbooks. And really, they look nothing like that. They're actually, you know, just smattered with a whole bunch of little signaling molecules attached to the outside. And a calyx, by the way, is the name of the armor plating of an of a, what is it, an armadillo? The thing that people are always running over in Texas on the highway or armadillos. <laughs> I guess it's an armadillo. Yeah, so if you've ever seen how like a medieval suit of armor has like plates of steel that overlap and armadillos have that, that's a calyx. And so in many respects, your cells are actually this pleats of, of sugars that are on their outside that are basically how it's testing and relating to the environment. And this is such a powerful thing because your entire digestive tract are lined with these glycans. For instance, most of the mucus in your digestive tract is made of these glycans. Most of all the things that are involved in your actually assimilating nutrients in your diet are based upon the ability of these glycans to be able to attach to proteins or be attached to by proteins. Right, so we have these glycans or these sugars attaching to proteins, which are the lectins that we're talking about, but we should talk about what actually happens when they attach, what they induce. You gave some examples, but one of the simplest things to talk about and go back and reiterate is the agglutination. They cause things to clump together. So they're binding, they cause things to clump together, and this signals to the rest of the body. So it can either signal um, an intruder for your immune system to attack. It can also trip off um, the production of more immune cells or more inflammatory processes. And to get an idea about agglutination, you can use this mental image of just simply thinking in your mind of a piece of Velcro that has uh, the Velcro in two, two sides, so it's like two-sided Velcro. And think of a cell as a tennis ball. So if you can imagine that this fuzz on the tennis ball is attached by the Velcro on one side and then the fuzz of another tennis ball is attached to the Velcro on the other side, now those two balls are linked by the piece of Velcro in the middle. That piece of Velcro is the lectin, and the fuzz on the tennis ball are the sugars. Now if I can tell you that in a world where we actually can take this a step further, If you can imagine that only certain types of Velcro fit only certain companies' tennis balls, then you would know why it's so important to know your blood type because lectins come, remember the word, lock and key, I choose. Uh, They're very choosy molecules, and a lot of times the sugars that they like to glom onto are part of your blood type, which is what makes the whole blood type thing so significant. And the other side of the coin is remember that uh, we ingest these things all day long. Sometimes we, we don't think twice about the lectin that's in um, peanuts or the lectin that's in lima beans or soy products. And, and we all seem to live pretty good, and despite we ingesting all these things all the time. And, and the answer is that we have a remarkably robust digestive tract that can handle these types of low-level insults. That even if you eat something that necessarily isn't particularly good for you, uh, in terms of reacting with the tissues in your digestive tract, your body has re- repair mechanisms that fix that. So it's only when your capacity to repair is compromised do all of a sudden things start to get a little different. So you find people with inflammation, uh, advanced aging, active disease, digestive problems, inflammatory bowel, ulcerative colitis. These are people who are going to be most sensitive because their underlying condition is compromising how well they can recuperate from these kind of things. And this is where avoiding those lectins becomes so super important. Well, and I, we talked a little bit earlier about how at one time I said if someone had a, a perfectly 
a pristine digestive tract, if they had no leaky gut at all, no intestinal permeability, meaning that lining around the intestines was perfectly sealed, they would have a lot less to worry about in terms of lectins because they wouldn't be interacting with their actual bloodstream as much. But um, at one time as a student, I posed this question to you and you said, yeah, great, sounds good. Find me someone with a perfect intestinal lining. They're not out there because of just, I mean, especially if our audience is largely America, the standard American diet has a lot of its pitfalls and, and um, well, we'd know, be hard pressed to find somebody perfect. And, and, you know, I mean, you don't have to scratch too far to find somebody who will tell you that, well, when they eat tomatoes or they eat peppers or eat potatoes, uh, if they overconsume these things, their joints will start to hurt. And a lot of that's based upon the same mechanism. And many of those foods contain biologically reactive lectins. And in some people, they're going to consume those things. They're not going to have any ill effects at all. But let's say you have an underlying early case of arthritis. You have, under certain ca cases, what's called aberrant glycosylation. So most chronic diseases are associated with making goofy sugars. Okay, it's just part of the process of the disease. Instead of having the right sugars, you make sugars that are a little bit off. And all of a sudden now some lectin that's in the diet that's found in a, an, an arthritic renowned food now starts to basically interact with that particularly odd sugar and cause a reaction. So it's not for nothing that people have discovered that a lot of those lectin-containing foods also can be involved in linking to their arthritis symptoms and things like that. Yeah, but we're, we're also only talking about the bad. And one of the things that's so great about your work is sort of your... Um, your ability to hijack the lectin system for its use in benefiting the system. And I, as far as I know, this was really extrapolated from laboratory work because in micro, uh, microbiologists and, and laboratory scientists actually take these lectins and use them to agglutinate or clump together the things that they want to study. So, you right, know, they're molecular probes of the first order. Exactly. So, in that same sense, using them in the human system when we want to clump something together like a cancer cell, we want the immune system to recognize it, right? And we want the immune system to, to kill it off. Um, and so you, utilizing lectins as an alert system in a positive way is, is you know, hijacking the system that could potentially be harmful for its, its good use. There's, a, there's an interesting thing when you, when you read medical articles, you know, they always get couched in, in medical ease. So sometimes you can read an article that says we've uh, identified a new uh, marker on a strain of cancer cells. Uh, and we First we tested it with uh, uh, helix palmatia glutenin and found to be non-reactive. Then we used uh, a wheat germ agglutinin and found that to be reactive. On the other hand, pisium sativa agglutinin was found to non-reactive. So let me translate that to you in English. Uh, we got this thing we don't know about, and we dropped an extract of snail on it, and nothing happened. And then we dropped an extract of wheat germ on it, and something happened. And then we dropped an extract of peas on it, and something happened. And then after that, we followed it up with an extract of barley. So in many respects, you know, we, the, the most common molecular probes that we use to probe the outside of cells to identify what they're made out of are simple proteins that are found in everyday elements of the diet. Just so to it's give just you an idea. It's reverse engineering. It, and and it, if anything could tell you that these things are far from ubiquitous, it's that little observation that they're used day in and day out in molecular biology to map the surface of cells, and yet they're the same things that we consume in our diet. I want to ask you something because this question comes up a lot. A lot of people have asked, 
asked me about soaking and removing lectins from foods through the soaking process. Well, the thing that one has to understand about lectins, which makes them so infuriating to some people, is that it's not a functional category in, in the sense that most of the time in biology, mole- molecules are classified by their similarity to each other. And th- what makes a lectin is nothing to do with how similar they are. There's nothing, no, there's no agreed upon shape that determines that something's, the only thing they have in common is the ability to react with the sugar. So you can find, for instance, that lectins come in all shapes and sizes. And from soybean agglutinin, which is the lectin in soybean, an enormous molecule, to wheat germ agglutinin, the lectin in wheat is a very, very tiny molecule. So the um, reality is that essentially, because there is no specific way of classifying them, uh, we have a million different behaviors that they, they don't share any of the same behaviors. So to get to the heart of your question, are some lectins inactivated by heating? Yes, that's why you can eat kidney beans. Um, on the other hand, there are other lectins that are actually amplified by heating. For instance, there's a lectin in bananas called Banlec, of all things, uh, that actually is majorly activated by the heat process. Interestingly enough, um, Banlec, which is the banana lectin, has uh, properties against the HIV, human immunodeficiency virus. So, and I want to just also uh, bring another thing in to, to tell you just how ubiquitous and how these things come to life. When there's a flu outbreak, you know, the media says, well, it's the H1N1 or the H2N3. What do those numbers mean? They mean they specify two things having to do with the influenza virus. The H stands for the particular type of hemagglutinin, okay, which is just a synonym for lectin. The old name for lectin was that they caused hemagglutinins, agglutination of heme, agglutination of blood. The N stands for neuraminidase, which is the enzyme that they use to drill a hole in the tissues that they're trying to affect. So a flu virus has two things that make a difference that it plays with every year so that there's always a new flu virus. This year, the N might be a particular type of neuraminidase 3. The hemagglutinin might be type 1. So really what they're saying in English is, this is the type of enzyme that's going to drill a hole in you, and this is the type of sucker that it's going to use to attach to you, and that sucker is a lectin. And, I mean, we can even think about some of the really commonly known herbal flu interventions like Sambucus, which is elderberry, and it actually uses a lectin that recognizes cells that are in danger or that are um, throwing off stress response signals as a result of being infected with the flu virus. So that's how, through lectins, that's how this herb is actually helping people to get over the flu virus more quickly. And it turns out that, for instance, another thing about uh, bladder infections, right? Everybody would say, well, cranberry juice is great for bladder infections, and the theory was that maybe it had an effect on acidification of the urine or something like that. But it turns out that cranberry juice is rich in a sugar called mannose. And mannose basically uh, acts as a sort of decoy molecule to flood the receptors of the bacteria that want to attach to your bladder. So in essence, to give you an example, it's like let's assume the bacteria that wants to give you a, a urinary tract infection is a piece of scotch tape, right? And it's looking for some place to stick. And uh, if left to its own devices, it's going to stick to the wall and uh, you're not going to be able to get it off. Now, l- l- let's say you have some uh, 
I don't know, talcum powder or cornstarch or something like that. And the scotch tape was lucky enough or unlucky enough to get have to be passed through this powdery substance. And the powdery substance attaches to the adhesive, so now the scotch tape can't stick to anything. So one of the best ways of dealing with lectins is to actually understand what their preferences are for certain sugars, and then to give those sugars preventively to basically flood the receptors so that the lectin can't attach. And we're talking about this in the, in the realm of bacteria because bacteria have highly specific binding sites as well. So you're talking about utilizing lectins to bind to bacteria instead of allowing the bacteria to bind to our own cells glycocalyx. Yeah, we're using sugars basically to stop the lectin from interacting with your digestive tract if it's a poorly chosen food for you. Um, to use it to block uh, the ability of the lectin to perhaps have a negative effect on your microbiome by maybe in causing problems for your good bacteria. Uh, yeah, there's all sorts of things about the notion of this protein. And like one of my teachers said it best, he said lectins are proteins that have a sweet tooth. He said these, these are proteins that love to glom onto sugars. And so in essence, you know, and all, as we said, every external part of your body is laced with these sugars. Um, and there's other things, too. For instance, lectins cause massive amplification of your immune system, a process called mitosis. And if you remember from maybe high school biology, mitosis is how cells kind of split up. You know, they, they clone themselves. And the uh, le many lectins cause a spawning of this mitotic function. So in particular, we know that lectins from uh, some of the immunologically active herbs accomplish some of their effect by causing spawning off of lymphocytes. One of them called pokeweed, uh, phytolacca, is such an effective stimulus of mitosis that there actually are numerous reports in the scientific literature about kids who were brought into the emergency room and had a presumptive diagnosis of leukemia because their white blood count was so high. And then later on, as they were getting ready to treat these kids for the leukemia with chemotherapy, their white blood count went back down again. And they discovered that these kids were just chewing on phytolacca leaves from the backyard because the plant has very pretty colored berries. Probably just eating the berries. So there's definitely a lot here with regard to um, the uh, story of lectins that we will not touch on. but. Things we should understand, too, and again, this causes uh, another venture into the world of diet controversies because, I mean, most people nowadays are very down on soy. And, you know, you get the whole, well, it's all GMO, which is valid. This is not a great technology for most people. And then you start to hearing about how soy does this and it makes men grow breasts and women. That's all difficult to basically justify other than anecdotal, although it's amazing how permeated this kind of thing is, which is really a pity because if most people who are type A could find a way to basically incorporate some fermented soy in their diet, they would get a tremendous benefit when it came to their cardiovascular system, when it came to anti-aging, and when it came to anti-cancer components. And that, a lot of that is due to the isoflavones that are in soy. And most of those isoflavones are far from carcinogenic. They're actually the exact opposite. They're anti-carcinogenic. The important thing about soy also is the lectin, because the lectin actually stimulates an immune response against cancer cells. So when we're talking about ingesting soybean, you're going to ingest the protein that actually stimulates the appropriate immune response, and it kind of alerts the immune system in this uncloaking type of 
mechanism that reveals cancer cells to our body. So in thinking about lectins and how they affect your health, the, the place to start really is first knowing your blood type. Yes, and, and definitely ABO blood type is important. And also paying attention because, I mean, a lot of times I have patients that come in and they don't even know it yet, but they're actually eating blood types specifically just based on intuition. So I think there's a huge capacity for you to really understand your body's response to the foods that you eat. And it's interesting observation that you just said there because one of the things you'll find is that oftentimes if you see somebody who's got a chronic disease that they've had for the better part of a decade or two decades, they've bumbled into the blood type diet oftentimes because what they've done is simply just came over time to realize that this thing made them feel worse. And when they avoided it, they didn't seem to have the same severity of the symptoms that they had when they ate it. And that makes perfect sense because remember what we said, these types of reactions are going to be minimal in a healthy, intact gut, but they're going to be massively amplified in an inflamed, compromised gut. And it's also not restrictive. Um, honestly, I have a lot of people that do resist going full blood type diet, and they're coming in and they're feeling great on their their other diet, whatever diet they've subscribed to. And a lot of the time, I tell them to stay on their diet, but to get lectin specific. And I tell them to pay attention to the lectins that interact with their blood type. And just by cutting those out, uh, a lot of people see a huge, you know, immediate benefit. Well, I mean, ultimately, I think we could do another section on lectins at some point. We'll come back and revisit the topic and get into a little bit more detail. But I think what we tried to do today, and hopefully we've, we've succeeded, uh, was to broach the fact that there are indeed foods that do react differently in people differently. So that one person might have a particularly beneficial effect from this food and another person might have a particularly deleterious or negative effect from this food. And really, what is it all about? It's about understanding who you are. It's learning about what makes you different. It's learning about what makes foods foods. Um, it's surprisingly that, you know, we are, nutrition science today is, is, is still back in the Bronze Age. I mean, we're still we're cal counting calories and uh, doing all the things that represent uh, what I call association nutrition. It's, it, these are observances that somebody can actually figure out has some significance across the broad population, which means that they'll impact a large number of people minimally. We're trying to find those things that can have a large impact in a small number of people. But in order to be able to understand that, you need to know what it is and you need to know who you're talking about. So personalized precision type approaches are really the only way you're going to take nutrition and jump it into a category where it's going to be anything other than the most simplest of advice of which people now have become so completely dubious of because everything comes out at a different week as new superfoods or new things to watch out for. And once you try to make those kind of decisions over a large population, they lose a lot of their validity. So, you know, the idea that we have with one basic genetic fact, an ABO blood type, you know, something you can get for free, right, if you go give blood, and some information that you can get from numerous places, you can chart a cost that's going to be intelligent. It's a little bit better informed. And I think the, the gist with lectins is um, not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. So you could throw away all lectins or you can hone in, get specific, and, and use the ones that are good for you. So I'm going to talk to you a little bit about deflect products, which are supplements that you can find at foryourtype.com. 
DFLEC products provide anti-adhesive therapy to lectin-sensitive individuals, which is all of us. There are specific formulas designed for each blood type, so there's four different formulas that provide a source of free blocking carbohydrates. So basically they provide the sugar that lectins will bind to and prevent them from binding to ourselves. I've used Deflect products in my practice in the beginning of prescribing a blood type specific diet for people to really clear them of any residual lectins that are hanging out in their system and ramp up their system for healing um, and preventing any further inflammation. You can find Deflect at foryourtype.com. And this kind of ties into the second part of our podcast here, where we have a small little feature where uh, either Tara or I talk about a research article that attracted our attention. And and this podcast, I'm going to talk about one that just came out uh, in, uh, I think, early March. And uh, you might have heard about this, that there are people who have what are called meat allergies, um, and they actually um, react to what's called an alpha-galactose sugar. And this actually is, believe it or not, oftentimes produced by a tick bite. And so essentially the tick bite results in an allergy to many of the, of the glycans or sugars that are commonly found in red meat. Now, of course, this has been taken by the vegetarian and veganism community as yet another reason to, to not eat red meat. And the reality is, is that it's not particularly the most common type allergy in the world although the numbers are definitely increasing because, well, more people are getting bitten by ticks, apparently. So if you're in the western part of the country, you'll, you'll see a much higher rate of this particular allergy. And it does actually manifest as an allergy that these people actually wind up with the liberation of what are called immunoglobulin E molecules. And so they can get all the manifestations of allergy, swollen throat closing and crying and breathing difficulties and everything like that. that would an EpiPen. Yeah. yeah, and require some sort of emergency medicine. Well, this study that was basically done at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis actually showed that the type and severity of this allergy is five-fold less likely to be diagnosed in people who are either blood type A, B, or B. And for those in the audience who need to have a lesson in blood types, um, the thing that both of those blood types share in common is what's called the B antigen, which turns out to be a sugar called galactose. So in many respects, it turns out that the fact that you possess a certain sugar on the surface of your cell, if you're AB or B blood type, that actually is so recognized as you that it tends to actually minimize your reaction to this induced allergy that has this allergen that looks like you. And we were talking about this before because it actually has a very kind of scary name. It's called Hara autotoxicus, which actually is a recognized immunological term. Hara autotoxicus is just the fact that our bodies are inherently disinclined to want to attack ourselves. In other words, even though people routinely get autoimmune disease, your body doesn't really want to do that. It's kind of, it's kind of biased to not want to do that. And so essentially w- what these article is implying is that people with these two blood types have even more of a disinclination to have this allergy because the allergen itself is looking like their blood type. So the body is just basically here trying to maintain homeostasis, right? And it's a lot easier for a blood type, anybody having the blood type B antigen at all to avoid disequilibrium, to avoid getting imbalanced because this is really just an imbalanced state. 
And it's interesting because according to the theorems of the blood type diet, Bs are generally a pretty omnivorous blood type, so they do have red meat in their diet. ABs have a bit of red meat, principally things like lamb. So it isn't like ultimately the fact that they're less likely to have a meat allergy means that they have a free passport to consume all the red meat that they want. It just means that this particular aspect of negative consequence of eating meat is less likely to be apparent in them. Okay, so in essence, basically, it's just one of those things that just documents the fact that despite the fact that blood types are hundreds of years old now in terms of their discovery, we're constantly discovering newer and newer things about them. And here's yet another indication that uh, something that's only been recognized the last couple of years is showing a specificity for one blood type or another. Well, and you talk about that in your work in identifying type A blood type individuals as having a higher incidence of cancer as a result of the patterns of the cell, the cancer cells, looking a lot like the actual A antigen. So a person with blood type A is a lot less likely to incite an, an immune response against a cancer cell because it looks so much like right. itself. Right. But a lot of times cancer cells can get quite stealthy and they can, they can put on a kind of a costume outfit that has elements of a person's blood group. Now, the other side of the coin, of course, is look what happens when the wrong blood type goes, gets put in you. All sorts of bad things happen. So your body doesn't really like things that look like the wrong blood type, but it's willing to get along with things that look like you, look like your blood type. So we'll try to actually every podcast come up with one or two studies that actually kind of fall into the realm of, all right, it's, it's an interesting observation, but what's the bigger story behind that? And that little simple article is a good example of the fact that there's a, there's a, there's a story behind the story there. And that is that despite what a lot of people feel based upon their lack of understanding or their training when they start to question whether or not blood type has anything to do with digestion, here's clear-cut evidence that there's a major component of an immune response to a food that's clearly predictable by knowing your blood type. And just on a personal note, I mean, you've obviously been doing this for lots of years, but people feel better. It's just undeniable. And, you know, it works, it works surprisingly well in a surprisingly high number of people. It doesn't work in everybody, which is why I wrote other books, to try to find other ways of being able to parse people to try to bump that percentage up. And further personalize yeah. the approach. But it sure. is one heck of an interesting gene. The ABO gene is a really profoundly interesting gene, and it does have significance that we are not really giving it its fair share. And some of that has to do with... Well, perhaps maybe the dog-eat-dog world of, of dietary theories in, in uh, post-millennial dietary dog-eat-dog world. But the reality is is that some people just launch, launch onto it. It becomes almost an intuitive thing. So yeah. I'd like to end the podcast by, by thanking uh, my colleague, Dr. Tara Nyack, for coming by. And we'll pick up our next podcast with the... Uh, uh, secretors and nannies. Yeah, the subject of the secretor variation and what significance that would have in terms of being able to incorporate that information into your lifestyle and choices and uh, what's what's important to know if you're a non-secretor 20 percent of the population are missing this gene and what exactly doesn't show up because you don't have it i'd like to uh, thank uh, robert Messinio, the producer of this segment and all the people who uh, are uh, associated with the Center of Excellence in Generative Medicine, University of Bridgeport, North American PharmaCal, and DataPunk LLC Informatics. Uh, we'll see you next time. I'm Peter Diodamo. I'm Tara Nyack. Uh, signing off for now. 
Hey, this has been the Health and Happiness Podcast. See you uh, next time. Until next time. <laughs>